0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: With the return of the Liberal Party to power, in early 1906, in a landslide victory, came the promise of new opportunities for John Redmond and his Irish Parliamentary Party. Traditionally, it had been the Liberal Party, which had always looked favourably upon the plight of the Home Rule movement, and it had been William Gladstone, Liberalism's foremost leader, that had seemed most sympathetic to the Irish cause. Though Gladstone had since departed, there was little indication that the game he and Irish MPs had once played would now depart with him. The likes of Redmond considered 1906 to be the beginning of a new chance to implement home rule, and finally bring about the devolved government that Ireland had for so long striven for. In a sense, they were correct, but on the other hand, events within Ireland's other pillar of Irish nationalism was forging its own plans for the future. Both pillars of Irish nationalism would play a profound role in Ireland in the years before the First World War, but Redmond could not know at this stage that it would be the extremist Republican Fenian organisations like the Irish Republican Brotherhood which were to have the greatest impact, despite the relative decline in that group's fortunes in the previous years, not to mention the comparable support that Redmond's party continued to enjoy. The story of Ireland's transformation from favouring home rule to home rule no longer being or seeming enough was a complex one, and we will set in place the foundations of that story in this episode. We will also seek to tell the story of two Irelands in this episode as we finally tackle the topic of the Unionists as their response to the constitutional realities of 1912 intensifies the entire Irish question and sets the Irish nation down a more dangerous path towards conflict and even civil war. In addition, the undercurrent of social disaffection within Ireland, manifesting itself in the plight of the average worker and their attempts to unionize and seek better conditions, also deserves coverage. All of this is ahead of us. Welcome to the mini-series. When Diplomacy Fails Presents 1916. A special centenary mini series exploring the context, characters, and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history the 1916 Rising. the dark eleventh hour draws on and sees us sold to every evil power we fought against of old rebellion rapine hate oppression wrong and greed are loosed to rule our fate by england's art and deed the faith in which we stand the laws we made and guard our honor lives and land are given for reward to murder done by night to treason taught by day to folly sloth and spite and we are thrust away the blood our fathers spilt our love our toils our pains are counted us for guilt and only bind our chains before an empire's eyes the traitor claims his price what need of further lies we are the sacrifice we know the war prepared on every peaceful home we know the hells prepared for such as serve not Rome the terror threats and bread in market hearth and field We know when all is said, we perish if we yield. Believe we dare not boast, believe we dare not fear, We stand to pay the cost in all that men hold dear. What answer from the north, one law, one land, one throne? If England drives us forth, we shall not fall alone. Ulster, 1912, a poem by Rudyard Kipling. The story of Ireland from 1906 to 1910 is one of reform under a reinvigorated liberal party that was determined to bring forth a reformist spirit entitled New Liberalism. In marked contrast to the laissez-faire style of Liberal governments in the past, the Liberal Party from 1906 began to actively intervene in the daily life of the population of Britain and Ireland, mainly for that population's good. The implementation of reforms were designed to increase the lot of the poor, following a number of worrying reports. While they also helped to remove the stigma surrounding poverty, in return, removing the stigma from those that actually accepted the benefits from the limited welfare available to them. Slums were cleared across many cities in Scotland and investment was made in schools and in the provision of protection services for children, who were beginning to be viewed as a vulnerable pillar of society for the first time. Regulations were passed allowing for affordable schooling and forbidding begging or the selling of certain items to children, while work rates were also massively reduced to prevent exploitation. The creation of a pension system and numerous poor laws led to an incredible boost in the welfare of the elderly, while a number of fraudsters attempted to cash in. The key question, of course, is whether these reforms trickled down to Dublin or Ireland in general, and in some cases they did. By and large, Irish slums in Dublin remained one of the worst examples of urban poverty in Europe but the British authorities seemed incapable of solving the morass of social and economic issues that went along with their necessary destruction. The rampant spread of diseases like tuberculosis, which had been all but eradicated in Britain by the end of the 1890s, cast a troubling shadow over Irish society. Alcoholism remained a striking problem, as did emigration among females especially, while the average life expectancy across the country was in the mid-50s, and only slightly higher in the areas around and within Dublin. The Catholic Church remained the port of call for over 70% of the population's spiritual, social, and educational outlets. Welfare within Ireland was provided mostly through either charitable organisations or the hated workhouse system that still held an important position in Ireland's underprivileged societies, while the Catholic Church constituted the rest of this provision. Nationalist regional newspapers took advantage of the explosion in print media at the beginning of the 20th century, with each new organization or league requiring its own organ to spread its own message. This led to a more informed Irish populace, and one well versed in the practice of reading new manifestos or pamphlets as they appeared. It meant that Ireland's populace was more politically involved and socially aware than they ever had been, which leads us to another important event in Ireland's pre-1916 history, the 1913 lockout. The process of organising Ireland's working class was an unenviable task. Everyone from the farmhand to the policeman was declared to be entitled to representation in some form of workers' union but this did not lead overnight to a revolution where working-class activism was concerned. The Catholic Church, seen by many as their moral and legislative barometer where activism was concerned, possessed differing views on union membership, mainly because any kind of working-class activism tended to drift towards godless ideas of socialism, which the Catholic hierarchy recognised as a threat to their monopoly on the Irish people's hearts and minds. Unions remained mostly illegal in the Irish workplace, but reforms had been implemented in Britain which drifted over to Ireland in the preceding years. New legislation entitling workers to free health examinations if they worked with lead or reducing the time miners could spend underground were some of the many examples of the reforms brought in by the new Liberal efforts. With the growth of the Labour Party and the increasing pressure that this put on Liberals to effect change, a pressure which rarely led to direct action, as London's process for implementing reforms was far slower with the power of the House of Lords, as well as the congested legislative system of the British Isles in general, it should come as no surprise that agitators turned occasionally to violence. Into this developmental period stepped James Larkin, a critical figure where social agitation was concerned. His speeches imploring unity in the workplace, the quest for rights in that workplace and the need to band together to protect those rights, began to strike a chord with workers, and he soon began to cultivate a following as Big Jim Larkin, so called because his profile and appearance seemed monumentally larger than life when he began his oratorical feats in front of eager crowds. The major test came in 1913, and I recognise this seems like we're skipping ahead a bit, but it is an important milestone for many of our protagonists in the 1916 story, so try to bear with me. Larkin was something of a rabble-rouser, having come from Liverpool and made his name in the strikes he effected against the dock companies there, before he was kicked out of the National Union of Dock Labourers for being too radical. He formed his own group following this event, called the Irish Transport and General Workers Union in 1908. Before long, though enduring a bumpy start, Larkin soon attracted followers and momentum despite the lack of legal support he had and the fact that the employers at any stage could decide to blacklist their employees in retaliation for their membership in a union, making finding further employment basically impossible. The sheer force of members of this union, climbing to 10,000 in 1913, caused widespread alarm among employers. Larkin's success in building up such substantial numbers in support of his cause led him to require a larger team of staff to support him. One individual was rising through the ranks and was coming to be seen by Larkin as a vital player in what would become soon a bitter conflict. His name was James Connolly. James Connolly was a Scottish Marxist of Irish parentage who empathised both with the plight of the common man in the workplace and with the downtrodden Irish, whom he identified with on ethnic grounds. Sporting a distinctive moustache, a gruff voice, but a warm demeanour, Connolly was an effective people person, as well as a speaker of great quality. He had the ability to imbue a sense of loyalty in his supporters, and he had grand ambitions to match these abilities. In 1912, he and James Larkin had helped found the Irish Labour Party, providing an alternative to the general support given to the Irish Parliamentary Party at the time, as well as giving a bit of distinctiveness from Britain's Labour Party that had been established in 1900. James Connolly's own brand of socialism was idiosyncratic enough to possess an undercurrent of sympathy for the Irish nationalist, which at times bordered on a support more militant than some IRB members. It has been suggested by some historians that Connolly's Scottish birthplace influenced him to become more radical to make up for any stigmas which may have been attached to him. Connolly certainly may have believed that because he hadn't been born in Ireland he would need to appear more republican in order to be taken seriously by those organisations, but there is little evidence to suggest that any republicans he came in contact with ever questioned his beliefs based on his workplace. Connolly's persona and charisma, it seemed, spoke for itself. Larkin and Connolly appeared to be the perfect duo to launch a dedicated response to the increased crackdown on the workers' activities, culminating in the 1913 lockout, which occurred from late August 1913 to early January 1914. Irish business magnates, such as the railway baron William Martin Murphy, who owned three prominent Irish newspapers, were dead set against any increase in workers' rights and were understandably fearful of any unity among them. The following weeks were bloody and bitter, as the streets of Dublin frequently became stained with blood, amidst an atmosphere of passionate speeches and terrible suffering. Eventually, Connolly and Larkin's dream of greater worker activism could not stand up to the hunger of the workers' stomach, or to the monopoly magnates like Murphy held. The name of the lockout came from the fact that it saw the employers essentially lock their employees out from their businesses, and its defeat resulted in Larkin's emigration to America. Connolly, though, stayed behind, and what was more, he became more radicalised. In the months that followed he formed the Irish Citizens' Army. In response, he claimed to the fact that workers were at the mercy, during the length of the lockout, of the police. Who willingly shot at and baton charged those that took part. The worker in Connolly's mind was in desperate need of a proper voice that could defend them through words as well as deeds, but Connolly was already drifting towards the more extreme end of the spectrum by the time the First World War broke out. His story is emblematic of the kind of radicalization individuals underwent because of the circumstances that they endured, but Connolly is less known today for his activism and more commonly known for the placing of his signature alongside six other men on the proclamation of the Irish Republic in late April 1916. Furthermore, he is renowned as the Scottish socialist who sacrificed himself for Ireland, being one of the 16 men executed for his part in the Rising. His is a story we will encounter again, but keep him in your mind for the moment. Social agitation of that kind should demonstrate that Ireland was increasingly embarking down the path of change, just like the rest of the British Isles. The new Liberal government had hoped to be the vehicle of that change, but the years 1906-1910 to 1910 had not been easy. Along the way, Conservative opposition to new legislation had consistently manifested itself in the House of Lords, culminating in the rejection by the House of Lords of the new budget devised by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George. The new budget professed as its aims the taxation of the wealthy and the redistribution of wealth among the lower classes, something that the Conservatives found unacceptable and which gained that budget the nickname of the People's Budget. By using the veto that the Lords possessed, interested parties there were able to block David Lloyd George's budget and thereby bring about a crisis. Unable to ignore the veto of the Lords, Lloyd George ensured that the Brits went to the polls instead to demonstrate that the government had the support of the population to act in such a radical way. Where this affects our story is the fact that the Liberals were returned with only two more seats than the Conservatives in the election that followed. Yet this was still enough to vindicate the Liberals and Lloyd George, and the House of Lords did relent, voicing their assent for the people's budget that spring. To Herbert Asquith, the British Prime Minister though, the latest revolt against the budget by the House of Lords had been an immensely embarrassing and costly example of that House overstepping its traditional role as subservient to the House of Commons. In response to this, a radical solution was proposed. The 1911 Parliament Act. This would remove the House of Lords' ability to veto legislation indefinitely as it had done in the past, most notably to the Home Rule Bill. By passing this Act through the House of Commons, Herbert Asquith indicated he was deadly serious about reforming the very way that the United Kingdom governed itself. But to the House of Lords and the Conservatives, it was definitely a giant step too far. Unsurprisingly, the act was opposed by the conservative elements within the Tory-dominated House of Lords, and within the House of Commons as well. Attempts to break the deadlock had failed, and so the populace were put through another election by the end of the year, in the hopes that this would vindicate Asquith's government yet again, and prove to the old order that change was on the cards whether they liked it or not. As boring as you may find domestic politics, and I would be guilty of just such a charge, it is changes like these that really make history, and they did not take long to make their effects felt in Ireland. The election at the end of 1910 brought similar results to that that had happened at the beginning of the year, which meant that the Liberals were faced with something of a quandary yet again. Suddenly. British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith was in dire need of all the friends he could muster in order to organise a Liberal majority in the House of Commons and to be able to pass through legislation like the Act of Parliament. He knew full well that the best opportunity to increase the Liberal force in the House of Commons would be to band together with the Irish Parliamentary Party, who held 71 seats, along with the Labour Party, who held 40 Asquith knew that the Irish Parliamentary Party in particular would be in a position to dictate their own terms for supporting the Liberals, and it was fairly predictable what John Redmond as their leader would request. Home rule. Faced with little other choice,
0: her... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Herbert Asquith accepted Redmond's ultimatum. What was more, as great as being armed with the promise of implementing home rule was, Redmond could feel doubly positive because of the guaranteed neutering of the power of the House of Lords, which the Parliament Act was sure to bring about. When it was passed in August 1911, the Parliament Act signified that a major barrier to home rule had been broken. Where before the Lords could oppose home rule indefinitely, now they could only veto it, or any other bill, twice. Faced with this conclusion, Redmond could excitedly estimate that, at the earliest, home rule could be a reality as soon as 1914. The traditional partnership of the Liberals and constitutional nationalists was reborn in this atmosphere, and Redmond seemed poised to finally achieve the victory that had so long eluded even the Irish greats of Parnell and O'Connell. Yet there were signs that clouds were on the horizon of this perfect legislative arrangement. Elements within Ireland were mobilising, and their manifesto was directly opposed to any notion of the concept of Home Rule. What was more, these elements were not based far off in Westminster or within the minds of the landed English gentry. Instead, they were the passionately held beliefs of Redmond's Irish contemporaries, and they lived only a few hundred miles to Redmond's north, in Ulster. In the second episode, I mentioned that three pillars of Ireland existed, the Irish nationalist, the Ulster Unionist and the Extremist. I feel as though it is time, before we go any further, to examine the second aspect of this trio. Sir Edward Carson was a prominent lawyer of distinctively Anglican stock who came from a wealthy inner-city Dublin family. It is he, perhaps more than any other figure of Irish history, who is most associated with the state of Northern Ireland. Indeed, one historian, John Brown, claimed that his larger than life statue, erected in his own lifetime in front of the Northern Ireland Parliament at Stormont, symbolises the widely held perception that Northern Ireland is Carson's creation. The passing of the Parliament Act in August 1911 released a flood of concern within Ulster and among Irish Unionists across the land. Their fear revolved around the idea that the creation of a parliament in Dublin would end forever the influence that the Protestant classes had, that they would be overwhelmed and outvoted by the majority Catholic population. An additional fear, rarely alluded to nowadays, was the fact that many in Northern Ireland worried that Ulster's critically important industry would be neglected or underutilised by a rural Ireland unsure of how to make best use of what that region had to offer as the more capable Unionists had done. By 1911, the island of Ireland was split almost 70-30 in favour of Catholics, with the northeast of the island of Ireland remaining distinctively Protestant and British in sympathy, owing to the history of the region as a major base of immigration for migrating Scottish and English settlers over the centuries. The legacy of the Ulster Plantations, launched in the early 1600s once the war against the rebellious Irish chieftains there had finally been won, meant that the northeast of Ireland had become essentially a Protestant enclave of loyal British supporters and a hotbed of anti-Catholic and anti-nationalist sentiment. The goal of Irish Unionists was to maintain the link between Ireland and Britain, which normally manifested itself into an opposition of any possibility of home rule. In fact, the Irish Unionist Party was established in 1891, two years before William Gladstone sought to bring his second Home Rule Bill before the House of Commons. From that point, the grouping, which was the major other pillar of Irish politics that Irish MPs associated themselves with, held considerable influence among mostly Conservative MPs, who were sympathetic to the Unionist concerns and were largely opposed in any case to The idea of home rule. The fact that Conservatives and Unionists held this interest in common remained a critical fact of British politics for the next two decades. And though it had lain dormant in the years after Parnell and while the Irish Parliamentary Party struggled to make headway, the constitutional crisis in Britain over the passing of Lloyd George's budget and the resulting Parliament Act which followed awakened them from their slumber. It is at this point that Irish history begins to march in a certain, definite direction. Contrary to what the mainstream version of history often tells us, Ireland was not militarised by Irish nationalists determined to overthrow the British yoke in unison. Instead, Ireland began the journey down its road to militancy and revolt by the actions of those that were meant to be loyal to the British crown, the Unionists. Under the passionate leadership of Edward Carson, who was able to capture the concerns of those Unionists he met and impress upon them the seriousness of the situation, Unionist elements within Ireland, but most notably in the Northeast, began to bind itself closer together and as a result develop more radical ideas. In late September 1912, so a year or so after the Parliament Act had been passed, Sir Edward Carson became the first individual to sign a critical document. Termed Ulster's Solemn League and Covenant, it was the most significant example of the level of Unionist opposition to Home Rule that had yet been seen. Only that year had a third Home Rule Bill been put forward, and was vetoed as expected by the now dramatically neutered House of Lords. Thanks to the Parliament Act, Carson and others knew that the Lords would only be able to veto the Home Rule Bill one more time in 1913 before it became law in 1914. To demonstrate their vehement opposition to any notion of an All-Ireland Parliament in Dublin, this document was signed, stating, Being convinced in our consciences that Home Rule will be disastrous to the material well-being of Ulster, as well as the whole of Ireland, subversive of our civil and religious freedoms, destructive of our citizenship and perilous to the unity of the empire, we, whose names are underwritten, men of Ulster, loyal subjects of his gracious majesty King George V, humbly relying on the God whom our fathers in days of stress and trial confidently trusted, do hereby pledge ourselves in solemn covenant, throughout this time of threatened calamity, to stand by one another in defending, for ourselves and our children, our cherished position of equal citizenship in the United Kingdom, and in using all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a Home Rule Parliament in Ireland. And in the event of such a Parliament being forced upon us, we further solemnly and mutually pledge ourselves to refuse to recognise its authority, ensure confidence that God will defend the right we hereto subscribe our names. The last few lines are especially significant. By pledging to refuse to recognise its authority, as the document claims, the Unionist Act here suggests that it would serve as a mere protest or a strike against it once it was inevitably established. Perhaps Unionist MPs would determine to abstain from sitting in this Dublin Parliament, as Irish MPs would do in time to Westminster. Perhaps they would petition to have a second House of Parliament established, such as an equivalent to the House of Lords in Dublin, which would serve as a bulwark against Catholic legislation. It is a significant fact that those signees of this document, among them former chief secretaries of Ireland, Church of Ireland ministers, prominent lawyers and bureaucrats, together determined that it was force, not due process, that they would appeal to. It is perhaps unfair to claim that all the signees of the Solemn League and Covenant, over 471,000 men and women in all, never thought to trust in the political system to advance their cause. Perhaps a number of Unionists did determine to follow the political process, but if they did, history has written them out of the story. Significantly, the majority of Unionist opinion seemed content to go against the express direction of their masters in London. Under the instruction of Carson and a hierarchy of other Unionists, which he now associated himself with, over the final months of 1912, shortly after the Covenant had been signed, Unionist militias dedicated to the prevention of the implementation of Home Rule by force if necessary began springing up. It is helpful to imagine Unionist society holding certain parallels with nationalism. Organisations were established within both to protect their way of life. The Irish Unionist Party to defend against Home Rule, the Irish Parliamentary Party to bring Home Rule into law. In the last episode we encountered the Ancient Order of Hibernians, a Catholic nationalist grouping designed to provide community and brotherhood to Catholics across Ireland, and promote their culture, beliefs, and practice. I also mentioned that this order was heavily weighted in opposition to the Orange Order, Protestant Ulster's equivalent organisation. The Orange Order had a long history in Northern Ireland. The traditions of it as a group are normally traced back to the 1691 Battle of the Boyne wherein the Williamite Wars were successfully brought to a conclusion against the Catholic King James II by the Protestant Dutchman William of Orange, so you can see where they get the name. From that point onwards, the Orange Order was defined by its pro-Union rhetoric, its anti-Home Rule stance, and its upholding of Protestant traditions and beliefs. The group had skyrocketed in popularity as the Home Rule crisis waged on, and Unionists' banded together for support in numbers. And with a view towards unifying the disparate strands of Orange Order beliefs, the 1905 Ulster Unionist Council was established to encourage unity, pride in tradition, and defiance against the Catholic-Celtic revivalism of the South. The Orange Order centred on the North of Ireland because that was where the lore of its grouping was founded. It also helped that most Protestants lived in the North, and an Orange Order hall was normally within the vicinity of most towns and villages there. The Orange Order's importance and development is comparable to that of the ancient order of Hibernians. Although a somewhat patchy history over the 20th century has dented the enthusiasm for the organization somewhat, as well as create stigmas that many Orangemen are bigoted sectarians, the Orange Order has since fought hard to reclaim its old image from sectarianism and Paramilitary groups, but the insistence on marching through Catholic areas, complete with triumphant anti-Catholic songs, continues to mark the divide in Northern Ireland today. In our timeline, the Orange Order were the critical religious, traditional, and communal arm of the Unionists, and a vast amount of members of the Unionist party would have been Orangemen themselves. As the Ulster militias sprang up in late 1912, Membership of the Orange Order became a mark of one's passion and seriousness for the Unionist cause. Much like the ancient Order of Hibernians, these increasingly divisive and militant organisations did little to ease the tension that the Home Rule crisis was creating. In mid-January 1913, these militias were consolidated into the Ulster Volunteer Force with the express purpose of defending the sanctity of the Union between Britain and Ireland. Any change to this arrangement, the Unionists, backed by their militias, declared, was now unacceptable. It was nothing less than the militarization of Irish politics, and it would have dire consequences for the future of Ireland. It fundamentally altered the way in which Irish politicians negotiated with their Unionist counterparts, and it ensured that the Home Rule Bill would engender a Home Rule crisis if London did not intervene. Perhaps unintentionally in the Unionist case, it also threw down the gauntlet for the Nationalists in the South. If the Unionists considered themselves capable and entitled to fight to prevent the implementation of Home Rule, Irish Nationalists could reason, What stopped them from mobilising to ensure that the so-longed-for bill for self-government in Ireland was finally implemented? In November 1913, in an article entitled The North Began, Owen MacNeill, a professor of Irish history in Dublin's Catholic University, threw down this gauntlet to Irish nationalists across the land to band together in support of home rule. The article had been written for the newspaper of the Gaelic League, called On Clive Sullish, or in English, The Sword of Light, as MacNeill had long since immersed himself in the Irish language and Irish history as a keenly interested and well-educated nationalist. Though more interested in books than in war himself, MacNeill had been persuaded of the need to use the influence of the newspaper to agitate for a response to the Unionist measures public meetings populated by thousands of interested Irish men and women followed. In the whirlwind of activity, MacNeil found himself in charge of these newly formed and christened Irish Volunteers by late November 1913. Ways of recruitment and popular enthusiasm took hold. In the name of defending Ireland's right to have home rule at last, MacNeill was willing to resort to force, or at least make a show of a willingness to use force. Historians have since weighed in on the debate, and judged that MacNeill and his colleagues understood the importance of having leverage in whatever settlement was to be imposed on Ireland. The last thing Owen MacNeill or his contemporaries wanted was to have Home Rule snatched away by London's unwillingness to confront the Ulster Volunteers so the counterweight that this nationalist organisation provided was believed to be both justified and invaluable. What MacNeil and a number of his colleagues didn't account for was the contribution his organisation would make to the increased militarisation of the island. With the two armed camps at each other's throats by late 1913 and early 1914, and with both sides waiting to see what London would do once the Home Rule Bill came up for debate again in the spring of 1914, tensions were at a boiling point. Perhaps MacNeil and his moderate nationalist colleagues had for so long followed the political process, but now felt in need of their own form of insurance in the current climate. They turned their attention tentatively towards the north, and watched the weeks tick by in the direction of the final reform which threatened to push their homeland into a civil war that neither side wanted. It was probably because of their focused attentions that they didn't notice a number of suspect individuals in the backs of their meetings or amidst their ranks. These were agents of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and they had began the process of infiltrating the ranks of the Irish Volunteers. We have thus established the two sides to Ireland before 1916. It is important to view Unionists and Nationalists equally and objectively. This is especially hard for people today, I find, following the troubles and the resulting atrocities during that ugly period of Irish history, where Republican and Loyalist alike killed in the name of their beliefs. It certainly helps to reiterate the fact that Edward Carson did not want Ireland to be partitioned at this stage, because that would represent a loss. He wanted Ireland to remain the way it was, and it may therefore be helpful to see the Unionists as the party of the status quo, since they didn't want the status of Ireland within the United Kingdom to change. But I'm going to go one better than that, with the following question. Was Sir Edward Carson an Irish patriot? Think about it, he wanted the best for Ireland, it was his version of Ireland, sure, but it was still Ireland. Too often we look at things in terms of black and white, nationalists are Irish and unionists are British, but it isn't that simple now and certainly wasn't that simple before 1916. Carson represented Irish Protestants that wanted to maintain the link with the United Kingdom, but they wanted this because they believed that it was the best for them in Ireland. It was a complex situation, that much is for sure, But we take liberties with the facts too much if we see Unionists and Nationalists as from different countries as they are today. They were different pillars, before 1916 that much is for sure, but the building they supported was the same one, and that building was Ireland. In the crowd of a volunteer meeting in early December 1913 stood one individual in particular. This man was a headmaster in his early thirties, a passionate scholar, learner, and speaker of the Irish language. His name was Patrick Pearce. For the moment he was a moderate nationalist with crazy ideas, but he was embarking on a radical transformation within himself. In time he would be the first of many Irish republicans to actively infiltrate the volunteers, but he would be one of only sixteen other men to die a deliberate martyr in the 1916 Rising.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,